Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick and this is episode number 86 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. We're creeping up on number 100, I can't believe it, and uh, I am super stoked for you all to find out who I interviewed for episode 100. It's pretty hard to actually keep it under wraps at this point, but I feel it's a special number and I'm going to save this guest for that time, so that's cool. And anyhow, um, sorry this one's a little bit late. I was on vacation to see my family down in Florida, and then I had some computer issues, and I had a bunch of gigs. Um, gigs are coming back. So if you come to Charleston, South Carolina, I got a few emails asking me where I was going to play this week, and uh, it's really nice to meet some people who listen to the podcast. So if you find yourself down here, be sure to shoot me a message, uh, danielpatrickmusic at yahoo.com. And hopefully here in about maybe another month and a half, I'll have some shows announced in some different areas. Uh, I just want to wait till the weather's going to be just a little bit more reliable. So I'm going to be talking to Joe K. Walsh here later this week. Uh, Joe's got a killer new album out with Grant Gordy, Alex Hargraves, and Greg Garrison. It is so good. I listened to it a bunch on my road trip in Florida. It's available on Bandcamp now, but it's going to be available everywhere in a few weeks. We're going to talk about that and about his new Octave Mandolin course on Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation's got all these killer streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. So if you like bluegrass, old time, or any other styles, you can learn it from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots Music. And this lineup's so great. You have Sharon Gilchrist, who has three different courses, Joe K. Walsh, who has now three different courses, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Feibish, and Chad Manning, and it's everything from beginning mandolin to theory. They're all high-quality multi-angle video lessons, and you can download the notation and tab, play along tracks, and there's plenty of tunes and songs to play. And join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now. Get your first month for free. Just go to PegheadNation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER at checkout. Uh, we also have Northfield Mandolins. Let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com or download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. Joe K. Walsh plays that Northfield Octave Mandolin, which is a beauty. And if you don't follow Northfield on Instagram, you are doing yourself a disservice. They post just the most beautiful pictures, man. So be sure and check them out. Also, Ear Trumpet Labs, they have hand-built microphones. They're built right in Portland, Oregon. The mics are beautifully designed, have great feedback rejection for live use, and the most natural tone you'll find for acoustic music. Check them out at eartrumpetlabs.com today. I love mine, so I'm sure you'd love yours as well. Pava Mandolins, dedicated to building for the impassioned player, built right in Austin, Texas. Just a great group of people over there, man. And last and definitely not least, Apollo Picks. Nick is crushing it. Uh, Norman Blake's signature series is coming out. Norman Blake is using these picks. I think that says a lot right there. And 40-day money-back guarantee, free shipping. No reason not to try those picks. So tell Nick, Dan Patrick sent you, and get yourself one. All right, let's kick off the episode with Roger here. The amount of knowledge this guy has is really incredible and uh it was a pleasure to talk to him he's such a nice guy and i hope you guys enjoy it as much as i did be sure to follow me on instagram and facebook cheers you guys have yourselves a fantastic week All right, now I'd like to welcome to the podcast Roger Simonov. Roger, how is it going? Hey, today? Dan, how are you? Good to hear from you. Man, good to hear from you too. Yeah. Uh, how are you doing? You're out in uh, on the West Coast, right? We're in California, it's in the middle of California. Yeah. Cool. How's the weather out there? The weather's good, and um, we're finding out they have more vaccine than they than they need. So there's abundance of that, which is interesting to go from none to an abundance. But <laughs> right. everything's, everything's good out here. That's great, man. Yeah. Well, let's start off first of all. Um, you have reissued, is it, that's the fourth edition yeah. of your, basically the mandolin construction Bible. Um, well, so let's talk about you. that real quick. That was, um, sure. it's funny because during the pandemic, I, um, 
I had gotten some woodworking tools and I was like, oh, I wonder if that book's around. And I went online and it was before the fourth edition was out there and I could only find it used. And it was going for, you know, hundreds of dollars. I'm like, yeah, oh, no. Right. <laughs> the, fir the first book was done in 73. And it's back when I had, uh, I was in the graphic arts and printing business years ago, which is, was really the foundation for starting Pick and Magazine and, and doing my books. And, and we self-published a couple of the books first and then later moved them on to Hal Leonard Publishing that did a really good job internationally with um, all of my books. I mean, I have 11 books through them over the years. So That's amazing. They, they've done really well, yeah. But this fourth edition, I, I'm... Really excited. And the truth is, a pandemic helped me spend a lot of focused time to go through that book and and do a lot of things I wanted to do originally. Um, one thing I for sure wanted to do was use color photographs so you could see everything in, in detail, which really helped. So that was sort of the easy part. But we just re-edited and redigested all of the text and added a bunch of things and had a few things I wanted to clarify. And I'm just really excited with uh, with this version. So much has changed, I would imagine. Um, since the first edition as well, and just well, like some some of the different things people have access to. Yeah, with the, I think having access to, but really building the mandolin hasn't changed since the first one, maybe decades ago or centuries ago. So this is just a, a more just a clearer explanation on how to do it and things to think about. So I'm I'm really happy with that. So how did you how did you find yourself kind of in this mandolin world to? Oh, crazy. Um, <laughs> I started I started building instruments back in 1957, which when I think of that and say the number, it kind of scares me. Cause, <laughs> um, but um, and I got real interested in in the mandolin when I first saw an F5 mandolin back in 1962 or three. I, it was the weirdest shape I could ever think an instrument could be. You know, to all of us, I think that very first vision is like, what is that thing? And I got intrigued by it. And you know, tried to build one and it worked out pretty well. And then I built another one that worked out better. And then I got very interested in the history of the instrument. And especially this guy, Lloyd Lohr, who um, was a musician. And everybody knows, I mean, he was a musician, and a consultant and not a luthier, but a musician and a consultant to Gibson. And um, started doing some research on him. And then the whole thing just snowballed over the last 40 years. So it's been what it is. Wow, that is incredible. Yeah. What, do you, now, do you play as well? Oh yeah, play banjo, mandolin, and guitar. Oh, nice. Who are yeah. some of your uh, Who are some of your favorite mandolin players? Um, I I really love um, Frank Sullivan. I think the work he does is great, and and Frank and I are good buds at the same time. Um, I think you know there. I hate to single out any one person. I think I think everyone out there that's playing the mandolin is really trying to do everything they can to express themselves through it. So I, I just really love hearing anyone on the mandolin kind of playing music. Yeah. How about when you were younger though, that, that, that you were, that got you really like sparked well, when into I that got, style? When I, when I started playing, I was playing five string banjo and um, had the great opportunity back. I think it's 62 or 63 to go to Carnegie Hall and hear this, this group um, uh, called the country gentlemen, which of course everybody in the world knows about. And, and sit just about six rows away from Eddie Adcock and um, listen to someone, someone's voice come through the banjo, not even playing the banjo, but just hearing their, their, their whole expression and voice happen. And I was floored. And that kind of locked me into bluegrass music and into banjo and then mandolin later on. I actually got into mandolin playing because there were more banjo players than mandolin players. And especially when I got out to California, every jam I went to, there were six banjo players and no mandolin players. So even though I played mandolin a little bit um, in some of the bands I was in out here and things I was doing, I just got more involved in the mandolin and the banjo just because of the void that needed to be filled. And what got you into instrument building? Um, I've always done mechanical things. I always love making things. And starting with the banjo, which is a very, very mechanical instrument, um, making making a neck for an existing banjo was kind of the start. Um, and that was pretty fun. And one thing led to another and you kind of just get into the process. And then back in 1967, I was making some detuners for banjo and making a couple other small parts and started this company called Simonoff Banjo Parts that later became Simonoff Banjo and Mandolin Parts. And then over the years, um, until five years, four and a half years ago, we were building mandolin kits and carving necks and backboards and soundboards for other uh, makers and 
doing fretboards and had a pretty pretty um, nicely uh, developed shop that did everything almost automatically. We didn't have any CNC. Our equipment was pretty much uh, all analog, but ran stuff just beautifully. So it just grew, just grew over the years. Yeah. I mean, your name was when I first started getting into mandolin. I mean, if you would type in mandolin, you would run across your shop or you online at some well, point in Google you. searches, which is pretty impressive. You're being politically correct, but it's, it's your, uh, it's, <laughs> it's true though it's true i mean you know <laughs> Thank I, you. I, appreciate I, that. I, I mean i don't know the number obviously on this but i for sure when i started playing you know looked up like oh well how do you how do you construct a mandolin how do you build a mandolin because you know you, you yeah. know you first start and you you got kids and you you look at some of the prices of some of the you know higher oh, yeah. end mandolins and you're like oh man yeah, i wonder if sure. you could build one and so then you start looking at like the kits and different things and you mentioned frank and Frank, one of his main mandolins, is that one that you guys built together? Yeah, he, he actually came out to one of our luthery camps and built one here. And then um, he was playing one made by another California maker that was a really fine mandolin, but he fell in love. We were, we were tap-tuning mandolins here, which is very important in, in construction. And he got enamored by that process. And that's the one he plays now is one he built here um, at our luthery camp. And, was, and I'm real excited to... That I actually, when you, I didn't think of that when I when you asked me originally about mandolin players, that wasn't frontal in my mind. I was going to think of Frank as a as a mandolinist because that's the way I first knew him, but not as someone who's playing a mandolin um, that that he built here. I also made him an uh, H5 mandola that he plays and he loves that too. Oh, so. get out! No kidding. I actually yeah. got to play that mandolin. That is a beauty. It nice sounds yeah. so good. Yeah, yeah and, and it gets well played too. Yeah, he's, oh, hey, he's on it every a, day. He <laughs> gets well played. And that guy, he's a he's a quite the player, man. He's so nice too. I mean, and he's really proud of that mandolin. I mean, oh, yeah. he his eyes lit up when he was telling me about it the first time I met him. <laughs> so I think that's really really cool. He absolutely loved the process of uh, of building that mandolin, and um, there have been a couple other artists that have wanted to come out and build either with him at that same time or build at different times with their schedule so crazy they've not been able to. Do you still offer the Luthery camps? We stopped doing the Luthery camp five years ago when we sold our parts business. Okay, gotcha. Because during the parts business, we had the ability to provide everyone with a mandolin kit that they built during camp. And when we stopped building the kits, it was the camp program couldn't really go forward. Sure. How long did it take when somebody would come to a camp like that, though? We we do. In five days, they'd go from... A, parts to a fully assembled tap tune instrument except for binding wow so but remember now the neck the neck was basically profiled the soundboard and back were, were very were just within sanding tolerance that's when they came off our machine so it wasn't that they had to do hours and hours of work but we were working we were working 12 hours a day for five days and they left with a whitewood instrument in their hands and uh, i've heard a lot of them afterwards and it's just been great to hear those instruments um yeah. Now, um, you've mentioned tap tuning twice now, and I find yeah. I find that really interesting because maybe not a, if, if you've never researched building a mandolin, you, you you would probably have no idea what tap tuning is. But it, it when you look at what goes into building a mandolin, it's so much more than just you know carving parts. And absolutely. And, and, and I would love for you to describe the process of tap sure. tuning because I find it so fascinating. I hope you I hope you have enough tape for about six hours to be in my favorite subject. <laughs> Perfect. So you you beep or yell when you want me to shut up. Okay, okay you got it. We'll go so, to the condensed version. <laughs> so, <laughs> let me let, let me sort of just back up a little bit and and mention that within the overall sound that we hear when we hear an instrument, we hear the strings that create the frequency and the energy. We don't hear the strings themselves. We hear the frequency and the energy they create. That energy is then driven into the soundboard, which excites the soundboard and the air chamber. And then the overall sound we hear is what comes out of the apertures, which it has to do with the, the resonant frequency of the body, uh, the res resonant frequency of some of the parts, the tone bars, the backboard. Um, all of those things comprise the overall sound that we hear. Again, the energy comes from the strings, the sound comes from the instruments. You move the same strings to another, to prove this, move the same strings to another instrument, and it sounds like a different instrument because the strings are doing the same job. The instrument, instrument's body is different. So all those parts of the instrument are like members of a, of a choir. 
and they all produce notes and frequencies of their own. So when you tap on a on a t- soundboard or backboard, or you excite the air chamber, you hear a sound. And if you listen carefully when you're playing an instrument, that sound is part and parcel of the entire sound that you hear. That overall sound that comes out of the air chamber, the sound of the body itself, um, and all of its parts, which is in acoustic, we call it a coupled system, all of it together, is the total sound you hear. So to make a long story short, getting getting back to tap tuning and, and to save you from putting the pulling the hook out and yanking me off stage. <laughs> um, when we we want all of those those voices in the choir to at least be coordinate with each other, to at least sing in the same key with each other or be harmonious with each other so that they complement the sound of the, the frequency of the strings. So each of the parts of the instrument can be tuned. And the process of tap tuning is so simple. You basically tap on a part with a a soft-faced hammer, so it, it only evokes what's called the fundamental or the lowest frequency. Some people call it an, an eigenfrequency, which in German means of its own or its 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 very its very own frequency. Um, and then, as you shave wood off, the, the the pitch as you shave the wood off, the pitch goes lower because the part becomes less stiff. And so when you're tap tuning that, like what if people don't understand, if you hold this piece of wood or have it held and then you, so you, know then you tap I'm it. Gonna walk, I'm going to walk out of my shop. Yeah. One second. And this is the easiest thing. And I I love to do this when someone calls me on the phone and says, yeah, I can't hear the difference in these notes. I now have a, I have a mandola soundboard assembly with no neck in my hand. So F holes are cut, tone bars are in place. Rim is attached with curve lining to the soundboard, but there's no backboard. And I am going to tap on the two tone bars. And in just over the phone, you'll be able to hear the difference in pitch, I hope, because I haven't tapped this one yet. Do you hear the difference in pitch? Yep. Those? A little lower to higher. So, okay, so exactly. So all I have to do is do that into a stroke tuner and tune them till I get to a specific pitch. Um, this is something that... Lohr himself was not doing, but Lohr was ask was asking to be done by the luthiers that were making mandolins during the, the heralded Lohr signed, which was a marketing thing, um, F5 period. And it's very simple. They tapped the tone bars, so they got the specific pitch. Um, when the body was closed, they signed the, the F holes because on the F holes, as you increase the size of the F holes, the resonant frequency gets higher. As you decrease the size of the F holes, the resonant frequency gets lower. And however, they were making the F holes to a specific size because they knew the size of the body and therefore that was kind of a given. So once you make one and you make the body the same size, then the F holes will be the same size. So tap tuning is easy. And you, you do the same thing with the backboard. You, you tap on it to, to, uh, to excite a frequency and then remove wood to lower its pitch. Right. And then when you put all those parts together. They're harmonious. Right. Yeah. Right. And what we... So here's the magic. And again, you tell me when you want me to be done, but <laughs> to me, this is very exciting. Yeah. The magic was when Laura was asking these to be done in the early 20s, he was deriving that art from the work of the Amadi and of Stradivari and Guarneri and the people that were tap tuning violins, because that was definitely part of their art. Um, however, when he was doing this in the 1920s, concert pitch was not A440. Concert pitch was not predicated on the A note. It was predicated on the C note, which came off of a piano and all the, if you could listen to an orchestra tuning up a zillion years ago, and concert pitch was based on C256. And if you if you take a look at all of the early, or look through any of the early acoustics books, the book by Hermann Helmholtz and by Field and by, I've got 25 books on musical acoustics on my shelves. Of the period, they all talk about concert pitch at C256. When C is 256, a is 431, not 440, which means all of the notes of the mandolins that they were tuning back then were a quarter tone off, which is why when you play one, you don't get beats or you don't get the instrument explode. You, normally, a, D, a, a normal mandolin is tuned to like a D or a D flat. But if you tune it a quarter tone off, then when you play a D chord or a D note, the instrument doesn't explode because if you tune the mandolin to a D and then play a D chord, the instrument's going to just explode because you excite the resonant frequency of the air chamber and create something called a restoring force where you drive energy back to the soundboard and the backboard in the air chamber again. 
So there, I told you not to start me on the subject, but <laughs> tap tuning, tap tuning is amazing. Um, it makes a huge difference. It takes 10 extra minutes per instrument, 15 minutes per instrument to do it. And all of the students that went through our literary camps had the opportunity to experience tap tuning. Uh, a lot of folks today on some of the chat sites say it's just a bunch of hocus pocus, but I believe, I'm not putting them down, but I believe it's because they don't understand how simple it is to do um, and haven't ventured into trying it, but it's really a very simple process. Yeah, I think it's cool. Well, that's a, yeah. and that was a very thank you for thank you for letting me bet. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, man. Yeah. Well, you mentioned yeah. Lloyd Lore, and uh, you have um, you have a pretty unique kind of relationship um, in a yeah, sense. Yeah, I do. And yeah. I, I'd love to talk a little bit about that. Now, first off, if they go to Siminoff.net, there's yeah. um, there's a huge, just great comprehensive uh thing about this but i'd love for you to talk a bit about it because when we were talking thank on the for, phone thank you for that i, I oh, appreciate yeah. it you're great I, i'm now assigning you as my marketing agent so i thank you <laughs> absolutely <laughs> so you know what i got interested in in uh, in the mandolin just before 19 just before 19, around 1970 1969 1970 and started to do some research um, among the first things i learned was that when lawyer closed the Viva Tone or the acoustic electric business because of the depression back in, in 28, 29. Um, he was very fortunate, very fortunate to be able to get a job as a professor of music at Northwestern University in Chicago. So among the first things I did when I tried to find out about lore was I called someone at Northwestern University and it ended up being a lady named Mary Moss, M-O-S-S, who was the librarian at the time that Laura was there, oh wow, she was going to retire one year. She was she was going to retire in thirty years. She was there, I think, in nineteen forty, and was going to be retiring in either nineteen seventy or she was there in nineteen forty one and was going to be retiring in seventy one. I really don't remember. I'd have to look at my notes. And I called her and I said, you know, try kind of sheepishly and said, you know, do you? Have any information there about a guy named Lloyd Lore who was teaching? She said, oh, Professor Lore. Yes, but I remember Professor Lore. He was quite a character. I thought, oh, my God. I'm actually talking to a lady that knew Professor Lore. That was my greatest hit. She turned out giving me tons of information about Lloyd Lore and about the stir he made because he married one of his students, a lady named Bertha Snyder. And it seemed that everybody during that period um, – he just knew that here Laura married someone 13 years younger than him who was a student. And it was a big to-do at Northwestern University sure. at the time. <laughs> so down through the years, she was really helpful in finding me a bunch of information because, A, she was the librarian and had access to stuff. And, B, because she was the librarian, she sort of was not the historian for the college, but she was sort of like the information hub for the college. And she was able to find me a bunch of things. Among them was very exciting. She said, you know, she thinks, she said what she told me. And this, we didn't have email at the time. Of course, everything was either on the phone or a week long letter sending it to, to, um, to, to her in Chicago. She said, I think Bertha Snyder is still alive. I said, that's great. How do I find her? And she said, well, call me next week. So I'd wait and huff and puff and <laughs> through all the anxiety. And I'd call her next week. She said, yes, uh, Bertha married a, a school a teacher by the name of Ralph Westerberg. And I think they're living in Iowa. I said, great. She said, but I think I can find out where they are. I said, great. So call me back next week. So I, <laughs> okay. So my life, I'm watching my life, you know, go before me like uh, you can't believe. I called her back. She said, nope. Um, Mrs. Westerberg and Ralph Westerberg moved to Englewood, California. And I'm thinking, California, now it's because I'm living in New Jersey at the time. I said, okay, it's even further. So to make a long story short, she was able to get for me Bertha's address living in California. Now, this is Lloyd Lore's widow living in California. So, and I, she, I, you know, you're going to need three hours of taking me today. I'm serious. <laughs> so anyway, I had a lady uh, working in my, in my shop in New Jersey. Her name was Nancy. And um, I wrote a couple letters to Bertha, and they were received, but they never came back to me. So um, I contacted someone I knew in the just just luckily, uh, a relative I had in the postal system in California, and they said they couldn't tell me much, but the lady living at that address is still alive, living at that address and taking mail. So my this assistant, Nancy, who was working for me, happened to be going to Disneyland with her boyfriend. And I said, Nancy, I'm going to buy you a steak dinner if you'll go from Disney to Englewood, California. Englewood is about 
15 minutes northeast of Los Angeles Airport, so about an hour from Disneyland. Or Disney, yeah, Disneyland, right? I said, if you go there and um, just at least say hello to her and introduce yourself and see if she's alive, I'd appreciate it. So a week later, I get an excited call, bu- bubbly call from Nancy. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm, I'm at uh, Bertha's house. She just gave me some fruit cup, which everybody in Iowa serves, by the way. You'll, you'll hear more about that. <laughs> gave me some fruit cup, and she didn't know who you were. And here's, I'm at her phone. Here's her phone number. And she said for you to call her tomorrow. So I called Bertha tomorrow, and I was on a plane two days later. That cost me a fortune because of the two-day-later ticket. Oh, I bet. To Los Angeles Airport to meet Lloyd Lore's wife, which I or widow, which to me was the most astounding thing. Um, I learned from Nancy over the phone that a lot of people had asked somehow or other, other some way or other, other people have gotten to Bertha and asked her about Lloyd Lore's mandolin, and she was just. That's why she unlisted her phone number. That's why she wasn't answering mail because people were after her about Lloyd Lore's mandolin. Wow. So I realized that the thing I will never ask Bertha is anything about Lloyd Lore's mandolin. So I went out to visit with her. I got there. The first thing she did, swear to you, was serve me fruit cup. <laughs> we spoke for five or six hours. Um, over the year, make a long, long, long story short. I'll shorten your three-hour tape I told you about. <laughs> Over the years, she be, we became very close friends. I spoke to her almost every day. Um, my son, Mark, lived in Santa Monica. He was in the special effects business, and he would go over to Bertha's to ch- fix oil a squeaky door or, or change a light bulb or do those kind of things oh, when something wow. got stuck or broken. So he visited her pretty often. He was only not even 10 minutes from where she lived. Um, and... Um, Forgive me if I'm going on with this, but it's an exciting story. Yeah, no, no, go ahead. Um, in, in her later years, around around 19, it was in 1980 or 81, I was on a business trip to uh, Boothland, Pennsylvania to, to meet with people at DuPont for a different story, different reason, different life. And um, I called Bertha, as I told you, I called Bertha every day. So long story short, I get back to the airport because I couldn't pull, call Bertha that morning. And her phone didn't answer. And she was never not home. She had no children. She and Lloyd had no children. Um, her sister lived in Georgia. Um, she really had very few friends. The only time she ever went out was to get her hair cut or go to the market. Literally, that was it. So I called her and the phone didn't answer. So I'm st- I've got a fairly long delay for my plane to leave Philadelphia. So I called her another 20 minutes later and she wasn't home. So I called half an hour later after that and she wasn't home. And then I called a neighbor across the street. I knew his name was Linus Keating, K-E-A-T-I-N-G. And I called Linus and I said, Linus, I'm in Philadelphia and I'm trying to get hold of Bertha and there's no answer. He said, hold on a second, because from his house, he could look through his front window at an angle through her driveway and see if her garage door was open or not. She did not have a garage door opener. So when she left, she left the garage door open. When she came back, she closed the garage door. He came back kind of huffily and said, her garage door is closed. I'll, I'll call me later. Oh, boy. So he ran across the street. She had fallen in her house 40 hours before that. Oh, my gosh. Had Or 38 hours before that. Had broken her hip, could not get to the phone. If he didn't get to her within hours or whatever, she I probably would have never been able to communicate with her again. Long story short, she goes off to a hospital. I, I changed my flight from instead of going home to San Jose to go down to um, John Wayne Airport. My son, Mark, picked me up who lived down there, and we go visit Bertha in the hospital. And from there on, she lived in a nursing home. I'm sorry to make this long, but the story is good, so trust me. Um, so in her later care, she's in a nursing home. I'm now her legal guardian. I'm paying invoices for her. I pay almost two times a month at least, or Mark would go over and pick up the mail and mail it to me, and I'd pay checks from home on her account. And there's one invoice from Beacon's storage in in uh, Los Angeles. It's for three crates. So the next time I was down, I brought the invoice into Bertha. I said, Bertha, what's there's three crates at Beacon's. What is this? And she said, I don't know. I just pay it every month. And I said, well, okay, can we get the crates? And she said, yes. And of course, she's not going back to her house. So I called Mark and I said, go over to Beacon's, pick up three crates that are in Bertha's name and bring them to her house. And Mark calls me the next day and says, Dad, this is a pain because i got to get a signature from Bertha, and this is really a pain. <laughs> but Mark, come on. You know, you know your son can be. Maybe if you have one. Oh, <laughs> I got daughters. I get it. 
So Mark goes over and gets a signature from Bertha, and he calls me the next day. He says, Dad, you are going to S three letters after that. <laughs> I've got three crates of musical instruments, and they're addressed to Lloyd Lore in Chicago. There's a label, there's a sticker on it to Lloyd Lore in Chicago. Um, I'm sorry, a sticker on it to Mrs. Lloyd Lore in Los Angeles. I'll go down three days later. We drive down with someone from, I was at GPI Publications, which is where Fretz was. I went down with uh, one of the guys from Keyboard Magazine and one of the guys from Guitar Player to help me uncrate these instruments in his driveway in which we find electric keyboards, uh, amplifier systems, the foot pedal and foot switch used with this electric F5 mandolin. Yes, I'll repeat that. Whoa. His F5 mandolin had a pickup on it. Wow. Um, a speaker cabinet. Um a prototype keyboard action, which I still have, and some stuff like that. Make a long story short, um, it did. The F5 mandolin was not there, but other instruments were there. So we had them moved over the years. I, I, we, with her, with her permission and approval, we have now now some of them on permanent loan at the uh, National Music Museum at the University of South Dakota in Vermilion, South Dakota. There's a bunch of them there. We have his TB5 tenor banjo at the the, the banjo, National Banjo Museum, I think, in o Norman, Oklahoma. I think that's the right one. It's a gold-plated TB5. And over the years when I kept dealing with Bertha, she, of course, would tell me stories about Lloyd. I know this is all about Bertha and not about Lloyd, but she kind of described all of his, the very fact that, A, a they didn't have children. B, he smoked a, a cigar almost all the time he was very 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 hyper um, um he was always playing an instrument almost every night but a different instrument but both p uh, clavichords that he probably probably the clavichords that were in these crates um and other instruments he played the violin incessantly he was a violinist and a violist not really a mandolin player his key instruments were violin and piano and we would just she would just always tell me stories um, can I go on with this for another minute? Because it's an exciting part of this. Yeah, of course. Wanna... Yeah, please okay, do. So, so during the time that she's living there, um, I was down in 1982 or three at the or four at the the NAM show, the National Association Music Merchant Show in um, in Anaheim, and it just so happens that John Monteleone is on his way back from something he was doing in Europe, and stopped at the NAM convention. I said, "Hey, John, do you want to meet Lloyd Lohr's wife?" And he looked at me like, wow, yeah. <laughs> and I said, come on, we're going to go. So I called Bertha and told him we're coming up. And John grabbed his mandolin. We get in the car and we drive up to, to see Bertha. And we had a wonderful time sitting in her little music room. She played a couple songs on her piano that Lloyd had written for her, that she took these handwritten uh, notation and tablatures out of a very little flat flat draw file she had in her music room and she'd tell us this one wrote, Laura wrote for, Lloyd wrote for me at this time and she'd play it and she sang a couple things and then John played something for her on, her, on his mandolin which she loved hearing the mandolin again in her life and in her house and of course she made us fruit cup because again that's what people <laughs> like to do and there was a little filigree a glass filigree on the table in front of us that had it was like a, a round sphere with um, the, the kind of glass they did back in the early 1900s had little bubbles in it. And there was a joker with one foot up in its air, uh, up, uh, one foot up in the air, kind of the toe touching this little ball. And she told us how Lloyd got her that as, as some gift for, I don't remember for what. And anyway, make a long story short on the way home, back to the back to Nam, John said, man, this is so cool. It was like having Lloyd, like plan for Lloyd and like having him in the house with us. I said, yeah, wasn't that cool? That was cool. And long story short, I, I'm going to fast forward to the very end because when we finally had to sell Bertha's house, because she was going to then forever be in a nursing home, she wouldn't, she would have needed care. Um, my son, Mark, is going th through things bringing things over to her. I had her, I paid to have, out of my money, paid to have her piano moved from her house to the nursing home so she could play something because she was going stir crazy. My son, Mark, calls me one day and says, Dad, where was Lloyd buried? The kids called Lloyd Lloyd because they were close enough to, <laughs> to Bertha. Mark called Lloyd Lloyd because it was like, it was, you know, a ghost that he knew, right? Right. 
where was Lloyd buried? I said, you know, I don't, I don't know that. I've been trying to find out. I know that his family was buried in Lewiston, Illinois, but um, I didn't know ever where Lloyd was buried. He said, well, Dad, Lloyd wasn't buried. I said, what do you mean Lloyd wasn't buried? He said, Dad, I'm holding Lloyd in my hands. Whoa. Mark had in his hands the ashes, Lloyd's ashes with a note from Bertha saying that, I, that Lloyd did not. That Lloyd wanted his ashes spread at Rogers Park, which is a, a very beautiful park just north of, north of Chicago, north of the city of Chicago, along Lake Michigan. And she said, "I don't have the heart to do this." So here's my son Mark standing in her house in Inglewood, California, holding Lloyd's ashes, and I has I still have the note from the ashes. We did finally see that his ashes went back to the ocean, but the Pacific Ocean, we couldn't, for a bunch of reasons, for your next interview with me, for a bunch of reasons, we'll talk about why his ashes never got into and into, into Lake Michigan. Um, and the, the crazy, so, so as soon as I heard that from Mark and knew his ashes were there, this is like five years, four, four and a half or five years after John Monley and Onia went to the, to her house and he said to me, it was like Lloyd was in the house. Wow. I called John up immediately, right? Like got off the phone with Mark and called with John. I said, John, do you remember five years ago you said you thought that Lloyd was in the house with us? He said, yeah. I said, he was. He was in the house with us. His ashes were in Bertha's closet. Through all the nine years that she was married to Ralph Westerberg, she kept Lloyd's ashes in her closet, which is a, a love story of its own that is so beautiful. Um, I, I have no idea if Ralph knew it or regretted it or was frustrated by it, but she could not part with Lloyd's ashes, which is amazing. So the, so the last tidbit of the story is I finally go down to the house. We, we've given away a lot of the furniture. Um, we gave a bunch of stuff to, to, Linus, to Linus Keating, who lived across the street, her neighbor, who took her garbage out for her all the time. And I'm finally going through the house in the guest closet and there, and I never noticed this before, but her guest closet had a, a sheet hanging on the left-hand side of her closet. And I just swung open the sheet. Behind there's a mandolin case. Oh. And I did exactly what you just did. <laughs> I just, oh, but mine was a little wetter, yeah. a little wetter than, than what you did. So I take this case out and I bring it over on the floor because there's no, nothing to put. All the furniture's gone. I open it up. And sure enough, here's this F5 mandolin with a uh, electric hand round coil pickup on it, a uh, volume knob, and a big electric RCA uh, plug. And I just uh, pretty much died. Yeah. And I went over to I went over to Bertha with the mandolin because her the, the nursing home was maybe 20 minutes away. I said, Bertha, I didn't know you had this because I never asked her. As I told you, I never. Asked her about Lloyd's mandolin. I knew about his viola. I knew his viola was in her will for me, which I have. Uh, but I never knew about, I, I just steered away from the idea of asking her about his mandolin. We spoke about mandolins and building, but never about, I never went there. I never wanted to violate that with her. Ends up that she she wanted it to be in my permanent care, and I still have it today. Wow. And I thank you for letting me go through this long-winded thing and using up every piece of tape you have. But the story is to me is both beautiful and memorable and, and exciting that she was able to keep his instruments alive and his F5 alive. Um, and there you go. So I'll be quiet. No, be man, no, that's, a, that's <laughs> a, man, that's What's like a great story. Isn't that's it? a really, it's a great beautiful story. story. Yeah. yeah. What a cool, yeah. what a cool yeah. story, man. And what an amazing thing to like, you know, especially for a mandolin lover or a mandolin a person who you know constructs mandolins i mean that is like uh, they oh know, yeah that's, to have, that's so cool yeah i wish i could tell you that it's an outstanding f5 the truth is it still has a little dimple which i filled where the hole was for the pickup because i i gave the pickup to a musician friend owned a music store um i, I won't mention the name and that he was going to rewind the pickup because it wasn't working and he was a he was a pickup guy and somehow or other, the pickup vanished a couple of weeks later when I went to get it. And oh, that no. really, really, really upset me. I bet. So without the pickup, I took the volume control knob out of the finger rest. I filled it with a little piece of matching tortoiseshell plastic. I did a little filler and a hole in the, in the um, soundboard where the pickup where screw was there. But it's, it has a Verzi in it. It's a vanilla-flavored uh, February 
24 uh, F5. I wish I could tell you that it's the only thing out of the world about it is that Lloyd played it. But beyond that, it's but he played it in he played it into as an electric instrument. He had a foot switch, which I still own, which was do you remember in the old houses? They had button light switches. They had a button you push for the on button up. So it has two of those on it because that's what the light switches were in 1925. And has two switches on it that works uh, two things in the speaker cabinet. Um, the cool thing to get a warbling sound, to get a wah-wah sound, a vibrato sound, a wah-wah-wah-wah sound out of it, he built a slow-moving fan that turned in front of an aperture in the back of the speaker box. Oh, wow. So that... Uh, how can I, it looks it was like two lollipops on a stick okay like a, like a big propeller with two made of two lollipops instead of instead of fan blades and as these lo- big lollipops turned in front of the opening it would go wow 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 like that so that was what one of the foot switches controlled and the other one went through a little um little box that had some very old resistors in it or a train i'm not an electric guy so very old diodes or things that cut the sound of the of the speaker in in half or some lower amplitude i never really measured it but yeah so his thing was with that was playing it electrically not playing it as a acoustic instrument and for sure he didn't play bluegrass with it. <laughs> right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what do you think it is about that lloyd lore um came upon with his construction that is still so revered today and so i mean it's like people are like well this works well, it's all the well, it's worked because we've come to love it and the sound that it made when a guy named Monroe started to play it. We've, it's a sound we've become accustomed to. Um, it's a look we've become accustomed to. Um, it's a look John Duffy used to take advantage of uh, with the duck mantle and he built <laughs> yeah. funny points on it. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, just to just to be extreme with it. But as extremely ugly as that looks, imagine what would happen if that was what the F5 was originally. We'd have come to love it, and that would have been the shape. Sure. Um, but the cool thing about to answer your question was that Laura, since he, Laura loved violin, he loved everything about violin. Um, and a little note, a lab notebook that I got from Bertha that a student of his had, he describes the violin as being the ultimate instrument, not a word about the mandolin. We, we love him for his mandolin work, but his world was focused around, around the violin. But look at your F5. It's all the violin attributes, the neck pitch, the look at the, the, the same string scale, of course, which was there before, you know, 13 and 15, 16 string scale, two F holes, two longitudinal tone bars. Your violin has one longitudinal bass bar, but it's really a long tone bar. Um, tune top and back. So he made the instrument come alive because uh, through his request, um, he had all of these attributes of the violin uh, built into the mandolin. So you're basically playing a, you know, a, a mandoviol or whatever you want to call it. And it just that's just the sound we love. It's basically a violin with played with the plectrum, and um, yeah. Pretty exciting. That's really exciting. Yeah. And so what is your, um, you know, I know a lot of people, there's differing things on the Verzi um, tone producers. What is your, yeah. what is your feeling on that? I know some people remove them. Some people it, keep so, them. So, uh, yeah, of course. Um, it, it absolutely robs amplitude. Um, anything you do that you suspend on the inside of the soundboard, you can put a piece of tape on it, to some extent will rob amplitude, um, which is, which is the most important thing. It absolutely enhances the overtone series because a plate held in its center produces a different overtone series than plates held around their edge. So the soundboard produces a different overtone series than the plate does. And the plate is very sensitive. It's like holding a thin piece of paper and rubbing your finger on it. You get that kind of sound, very wispy sound. So it really, it really makes the, the mandolin sound like a viola. And every artist that has been um, at my home and has played this F5, they've all had this kind of like deep, oh my gosh, kind of. And I think they get the same feeling if they played any F5 mandolin with a Verzi tone producer in it. So Laura loved it. He had one put in his viola. So the viola I own, which is an 1878 August D-L-D-I-E-H-L viola, has his Verzi tone producer in it. It's the same one that he wrote about in the Verzi catalog 
um, where he talks about now being able to hear an additional five partials in the overtone series, upper harmonics, in other words. Wow. So yeah, it really it really enriches the voice, um, like uh, amazingly. And so if you want something that has a very thick piano-like, um, harp-like, I should say, um, sound with a huge overtone series, a lot of bouquet, then a versitone produces a good thing. But for the chop and the bark you want out of an F5 for bluegrass music, um, it robs it robs bark, it robs amplitude. I always, yeah, I was never really sure why the, uh, you know, the big, I was going to say controversy, but the huge difference of why some people keep them in and some people, yeah. um, you know, have them taken out. So that completely yeah. answers that. <laughs> it was it was under, under Laura's request that Gibson started installing them as an accessory in 1923 and 24. And when Lord left the company at the end of 24, um, Gibson canceled that, that deal they had with Verzi. And in their accessory catalog, they stamped the word canceled on those pages. They, if, if it was today's digital printing, they could have easily changed the, the pages. But in those days, when catalogs took so long to handset type and print, um, things were slower. So they just rubber stamped the name canceled. And then later they went into the violin business themselves but uh, that was for a whole different cause oh that's wild but you'll find these and you'll find the very tone producer in a model mandolins and you'll find them in in l5 guitars as well oh no kidding oh yeah oh yeah now your um the book is that just for f style designs the the newest book the or book is, that... is the book is for the ultimate bluegrass mandolin construction manual this fourth edition is specifically about building an f5 mandolin okay but we have drawings for the H5, the A1, the A4, the F4. We have drawing sets whose drawing numbers match everything in the book. So if you wanted to build a mandola, instead of looking at the drawings that are in the in the book that I did, we could just we offer a separate set of. And I don't want to sound like I'm selling something, but to answer your question, we offer a separate set of of mandola or F4 or A5 drawings that would go along with doing this mandolin yeah 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 i saw that on the thing and and again i hope I, that didn't sound like a sales no not at all man and i'll tell you what <laughs> i mean if if a guy like lynn dudenbost who's been building some pretty excellent instruments when i'm at his place and the brand new fourth edition is there on the shelf that says yeah. a lot right there man <laughs> lynn is an lynn is an amazing builder he and our good buds um and I, I was thrilled to hear uh, the podcast you did with him several weeks back. Um, and we've had, we spent some good times together. I think one of the best times I spent with Lynn is we went camping together in the Smokies and he was burning some old soundboards and backboards that weren't good enough. And we, that, that was what was making our fire. And we were both having a hell of a time laughing about what was warming us up. <laughs> and, <laughs> that's great that was it, yeah lynn's great and it was really cool to go there too and, ha and have him you know like a, oh, i found this piece of wood you know at a, a, a hardware store a few miles away and you, you know he taps it and you're just like wow listen to that beautiful piece yeah. of wood that was just sitting yeah. there and uh you know it's amazing yeah. man oh yeah for sure yeah i'm glad you did that with him he's an amazing builder yeah for sure boy i played his I played his number one, which is there, and holy moly, he got it yeah. right right off the bat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What a beauty. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the strings that you have now, too. Those are thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So during during the years that I was working on instruments, and and I consulted to Gibson on a bunch of bunch of projects. Um, among them, I'm sure you know about, and I'm sure your audience knows about, is the reintroduction of the F5L mandolin in '78. But I I was involved in several things. Uh, licenses of things like truss rod patents and uh, tuning machine patents and things with Gibson. And I got involved with Bob Lynch, who headed up the string division in Elgin, Illinois, and um, started working on a bunch of ideas with him back in the, in the 70s. In fact, was involved in developing Gip, Gip, Gibson's Equa strings or Equa strings, EQUA, which, which were which was a mistake, which was the right thing for us to do then, but was a mistake now, retrospectively, because uh, those strings were designed to all have the same tension when it pitch, um, which was a giant step over what all of the other private labels were doing at the time, having every different gauge of string in a set and having no rhyme or reason to why they should be that way. So, um, and so, I, so from there, I worked on strings and doing some tension devices with uh, with the Gibson division, string division in Elgin, Illinois, and then um, the VP of of uh, of VP of 
product development, I think was his official title. And the artist relations guy at Gibson was a guy named Bruce Boland, or is a, is a guy named Bruce Boland. Bruce is still very much alive and kicking and lives up in Michigan. And Bruce left um, Gibson um, during the time that they, right after they moved to Nashville and when he was working for Henry Juskowitz, who at the time was at the reins of Gibson. And he went to Fender. And when Bruce went to Fender, he immediately had me get together with Bill Schultz, who owned Fender, or headed up Fender, and start working on strings for the for the Fender Squire division down in Chula Vista, California. So I got involved in working with these two companies on string tensions and winding and wrap core combinations and string tension, the, the, the tension of the core wire while it was being wrapped and the tension of the wrap wire while the core wire was being wrapped and so on and so forth. Spent a lo- spent, make a long story short, spent a lot of time working on strings. And then about five years, six years ago, I designed some strings for, for Santa Cruz Guitar Company and they've done very well. And it's an interesting set of very carefully designed gauges and wrap wire. And my two daughters who owned my parts business at the time, Callie and Amy, um, said, you know, you always talk about all the string stuff you did, but you've never done strings for us. And I thought, that's interesting. <laughs> so I spent some time really focusing on what the mandolin needed because I had done guitar strings for Richard and didn't want to step on his toes. And when you consider the mandolin that has two courses of strings sitting near the posts and two courses of strings sitting over the middle of the saddle or near the middle of the saddle, you have to appreciate that there's a different path of energy for the center two courses to the soundboard than there is from the outer two courses to the soundboard. So those tensions need to be different, and that requires an unusual chord and wrap wire combination. And um, and probably more visually would be for you to think about the next set of strings we develop, the next set of straight-up strings for banjo, because if you think about a regular banjo, five-string banjo bridge, you have three strings sitting over feet, and two strings sitting over arches. Oh, right, yeah. And if you jump back in history to the days of a Monte Guarnerian Stradivari, um, and then I have a quick uh, story to tell you about Stradivari, but let me go back a minute. But take a look at the violin bridge that came through the three of them, in which none of the strings have a direct route of energy to the to the belly or soundboard of the violin. If you there's a there's a um, the kidneys, the two cutaways on the side of the violin bridge, which interrupt those outer strings from a direct route. And there's the heart in the center of the bridge that interrupts the center two strings from having a direct route. And all the energy is attenuated through the waist. I mean, there's a bridge that hasn't changed in 300 years. Amazing, hasn't changed in 300 years. So we started to really focus on the strings very carefully down to gauge differences of a half of a, of, of a ten thousandths of an inch, which most people don't do. Um, and uh, I'm sorry, a hundred thousand of inch. Most people don't do in strings. And we tested strings for almost a year and a half until we finally came up with what was this amazing set. And during our tests, we could we could really hear the difference of changing a very tiny difference in string gauge. And we had about six or eight people at every test sit and not look at what we we're doing, but just listen to us being played. We came up to our last set of strings, and a guy named Ken Roddick, who worked with me and a very dear friend for many years, and a super guitar and bass player. Um, and Ken was sitting there playing a mandolin. He said, you know, I can hear every note of every chord. And I thought that is so cool. We actually, we actually use that now as a tagline, but we really believe that we've found a way, um, especially for the mandolin and for the guitar where you have, cause on the banjo, I have, you know, I don't have as many, I have four round string, I have four plane strings and one wound string to deal with. I can't, I can change a lot, but I don't have quite the latitude on dealing with a wound string where I'm playing with a combination of core, core wire and rap wire at the same time. But on the guitar, we feel like we really cracked the code for guitar. And um, you think about a guitar bridge now where you have six strings of which two of them don't have neighbors, the outside strings. The other strings do have neighbors. And when you think of the idea of neighbors for a minute, imagine if you have three strings where the outer two strings are, have a tension of 20 pounds at the bridge, and the middle string has a tension of 10 pounds at the bridge. There's nothing the middle string can do, the 10-pound string can do to overpower or move the bridge if the outer two strings are pulling at 20 pounds. On the other hand, when the 20-pound strings pull, they will absolutely overpower the 10-pound string that's pulling. So if you think of that concept and then fine-tune it down to six strings, two of which that don't have neighbors and the others that do have neighbors, um, working out their relative down pressure or torque tension at the bridge for guitar is is an art and I just feel like we've really cracked the code. 
I got it. Can I tell my quick Stradivari story? Yeah, yeah, I please do. Here. So when the thing is Stradivari and Stradivarius, it's really just kind of interesting for all of your listeners who want to go out at a party and want to know the difference between Stradivari and Stradivarius. In fact, this leads us to Gibson a little bit. Stradivari was the artist's name. Stradivarius is a Latin declension, which actually means of the man or the man's. It actually means the Stradivari. Oh, wow. It means the Stradivari. So think for about for a moment about a guy who was actually admitted, admitted three times into a psychiatric care place, was in uh, a non-mental hospital in Kalamazoo, Michigan, twice for mental care, a guy named Orville Gibson, very, very unusual guy who designed some very unusual instruments, who put the Gibson on his peghead. Oh. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if the the in Gibson came from his learning or anything at the time about Stradivarius, meaning the um, Stradivari. Anyway, I'm sorry to do that. But no, that's great, you man. Asked for it. Absolutely. You asked for it. This was your idea. No, no this is great. <laughs> and this is, man, this has been, this has been so enlightening besides just like, I mean, just the, the years of knowledge that just hearing you talk about the strings, I mean, you weren't just like, oh, I think this will work. I mean, you, no. you know, the the fact that you're thinking about the, the amount of tension and where they lay and how the – Oh, God, it's yeah. It's so cool to me, man, and that's also that's Also appreciate this for a moment. You have 11 string manufacturers in the world, prominent ones, 11 string manufacturers in the world, and over 5,000 private labels. Oh. <laughs> so so um, – I, I just remember years back, in fact, I'm, I'm doing another book now. I'm not going to mention its name because I don't want to hype the book. I'm working on a revision of another book now, and um, and in there I'm mentioning, I heard, actually, literally heard someone say to me once how at the time they really hated the guild strings of a particular gauge, but they really liked the Daddario strings better. And in my mind, I in my, my mind, in, in my in my knowledge, I knew that the Daddario was making the guild strings at the time. It's like, <laughs> what? But the perception, perception is... You know, perception is ninety percent of of what we do. Yeah, you bet, man. That's why that's why packaging and marketing is so important. You bet, you bet. You so, know, well, well, hype the book. But, Feel free to hype the new book if you'd like to. I'd be no. more than happy to have you do it. <laughs> so, are you sure? Yeah, man. This is why okay, I do this podcast. So promote, promote book, away. I have a book. I have a book called The Luther's Handbook, which has been out for a bunch of years, and we're going through a second revision of it. It'll be out in about a month, so that's exciting. But but the one that's that's near and really, really near and dear to my heart, not that they all aren't, is The Art of Tap Tuning, which is going to come out as a second edition, probably at the end of May. Um, it's all put together. We're just editing it. And I'm so in love with the idea of tap tuning that that's, I guess, why it really floats my boat to go through it and totally tweak that book and, and help people uh, fully appreciate it. So there you go. And thank you for letting me do that. Oh, but I, I didn't want to do it. No, no, man. The whole idea behind this podcast is to talk to some of my favorite players and people behind the mandolin and let them promote whatever it is that they're working on. Let's get the word uh, out there. I appreciate that. Absolutely. I appreciate that. You, man, you can really, yeah. I can feel your passion through this entire phone call. I love it. Yeah, so this well, has I been a great it. one, man. I love man. the business. Yeah, you yeah. can tell. <laughs> you can tell. Yeah. Well, I have, I've got one more question for you. Go ahead. And um, that is, do you have a favorite beer? I do have a favorite beer, but you have to move to California. It's called 805, which happens to be our area code here in where I am in California. It's made in a little town called Paso Robles, California, which is like one of the wine capitals of the world. I don't know where they make beer there. Um, it's just a super beer. So, I, yeah, I do love 805. I don't drink a lot of it, um, but I drink it. I always have it in the house, and when a friend's over and we pop one open, I do it too. So I do have a favorite beer, yeah. Well, Roger, this has been wonderful, and and this, if, if it makes you feel better, it's only been fifty five minutes. It's amazing. Oh, super! Yeah, yeah. See, yeah, you you could tell you're passionate, and I love it, and I really appreciate <laughs> well, I you taking the time to do I, this. You know, I love everyone I've met in this industry, and I and I love the business, and I I really appreciated what you've been doing with your podcast. I'm not trying to just pat you on the back because oh, of thanks. what you said about me, but <laughs> um, I but um, truthfully, after I heard the, the last podcast you can even acknowledge i sent you a note and told you how highly i respected what your approach was uh with the person you're interviewing and i just you're doing a good job and you're doing a very important thing for the industry and i thank you for that i, oh, I, I, I think everyone who's listening would agree and thank you oh, so thank you for what you're doing thank you so much well i guess we'll we'll, yeah. we'll leave it at that then thank you roger i okay. really appreciate it 
All right. We'll meet down the road somewhere. That'd be great. All right. Thanks so much, everybody. Uh, also, if you get a chance, please be sure to visit my sponsors. They're the best. Mandolin Cafe, Peghead Nation, Northfield Mandolins, Ear Trumpet Labs, Ellis and Pava Mandolins, and Apollo Picks. Uh, I appreciate that they support this podcast as much as I su- appreciate how much you all support this podcast. It means the world to me. I really appreciate it. If you're down in Charleston, South Carolina, come and see me sometime. And uh, hopefully I'll be seeing some of you people in your neck of the woods, too, in the near future. Cheers, everybody.